Welcome to the Small But Mighty Biz Stories Podcast, where we talk about the inspiration and motivation behind your small business. Here's your host, Karen Wilson. Welcome to Small But Mighty Biz Stories. I'm Karen Wilson, and today I'm so pleased to have my friend Ariadne Athanasiadis to join me to talk about her business, Kaima Professional Corporation. Ari is the founder and lead IP attorney and patent agent for Kaima. She provides legal services around intellectual property to small and medium-sized businesses, which is, of course, an area of business that's growing and in turn creates quite a lot of demand for legal advice to ensure the protection of an asset class that's become incredibly important for business. Hi, Ari. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Karen. Excellent. Well, please tell us about you. Tell us about me. Okay, so I am... A girl that just, I guess, loves to learn and loves to see and experience many things, especially on an intellectual level. So I guess ending up in intellectual property is is probably a, a natural fit for me. But I think more than anything else, I really enjoy experiencing the, the beauty and wonder of creative expression. So mm. as a child, I loved to do my art, but at the same time, I was fascinated by the inner workings of nature and scientific things. So I've always been equally drawn to the arts and the sciences. And so I found it very difficult when the time came to sort of pick a path, what that path would be. And uh, when I was in high school, I had the, well, I, I had the opportunity to live in another country. And I went to school in, uh, I did my high school, most of it in, in Greece. And there you get the opportunity to work with teachers that are a little bit different from, you know, teachers who are in your home country, because these teachers are adventurers to begin with, right? They decide to pick up from wherever they are around the world and go live in another country and work in a school that isn't bound by the the same sort of curriculum constraints that you find when, you know, you're in your home place. So, they were pioneers in and of themselves. And when I uh, when I told my science teacher at that time, cloning technologies were becoming big, I said, I want to work in bioethics because I think this cloning stuff is going to be a big issue. She said, oh, okay, yeah. that's nice, but maybe you should understand what science is all about first, right? So walk yeah. in the shoes of the scientists. And that has been something that's kind of stayed with me since then is when I'm going to do something, it's really important to understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of that other person. Mm. And so when it comes to everything about the creative process to be in that happy space of being able to express creatively, um, what is everything else that impacts that? And, And I've certainly, I think, found that by going into this area, I did study science. I did a master's in, in biochem. I, I went through the natural path to go into intellectual property because of that, worked in the sort of pharma and clean tech and, you know, those types of, of areas. And then when I left the firm to go out on my own, I realized I really wanted to be, have a much more intimate experience with the solopreneurs, with the, the small businesses, because It's at that stage that whatever it is that's creating and coming through them is closest and most connected to their hearts. You know, when companies get bigger and bigger, sometimes the disconnect starts to happen between why did we do this? What was the heart piece that drove us to come up with this innovation or or what have you to um, to sort of saying, well, now we have, you know, all these operational obligations. We got to do distribution. We got to do manufacturing. We got to meet the regulatory stuff. We got to satisfy the shareholders. And so inevitably the points of connection with the people that keeps the point of connection to the heart can sometimes get eroded or oftentimes Mm -hmm. get eroded, I think, as a company gets bigger. But when things are small, you're right there and you're feeling the energy of that creative impulse and seeing everything that impacts it and knowing that it's still connected to the beating heart of the creators. And so that's what I love. And that sort of brought me back to that sense of wonder 
and an appreciation of beauty that I had as a child growing up, enjoying with both the arts and the, the sciences. And, and really, whether you're in the arts, there's a science associated with it. Whether you're in the sciences, there's an art associated with it. And so what's that intersection and interplay between these two different modalities of, uh, of being that just continues to be a source of fascination for me. So I, I play all these sort of intellectual games in my head, but that's what <laughs> keeps it fun. <laughs> well, it's, it's a really interesting to hear you talk about that because I, I can totally relate to that feeling of all these different, all these competing interests in larger companies. Cause I've, I've been in that world too. And, and it's, uh, it's really hard when you have a, a belief too, or, or certain values that, uh, you hold dear, whether it's about the process of business or in your life and, and, and there you're competing with other people's values and beliefs and interests, and sometimes even their goals that conflict. And that's one of the beautiful things about the, the small business world is that you know, I, I tell my clients all the time, well, you don't have to do it that way. You're, you're the boss. You get to make the decision and, and we get to find the alignment that feels right. Um, and so I, that's a really fascinating combination of backgrounds. So how does all of that sort of fit together for you today? Cause, cause there's, there's, certainly parallels in in biochem and then moving into intellectual property law. Yes. Well, I, I mean, many people, I think, could appreciate that having a biochem background, it would be natural for me to help companies that are technology-based and particularly technology-based from the biological sciences. Um, mm -hmm. But where I've evolved to is actually, I've actually moved away from that. and. I find that it's really the the creativity and the innovation around the little things that make a difference to mm -hmm. the quality in a person's life. And in particular, I see a lot of the challenges being with uh, the service industry and how much of the creativity is just so inherently a part of the individual themselves, right? There's many oh, people, yeah. for example, who might open up a spa, but they each have a different story behind the reason yeah. for opening up the, the spa. And so the experience you're going to have is going to be a, a reflection of kind of like that distinctive reason and story for getting them there. And so, for example, I, I've dealt with situations where, you know, someone gets in touch and sort of says, I, someone's copied my website, word for word. Yeah. And, you know, that's, if I look and I say, oh, yeah, that looks like a word for word copying. Okay, that's a copyright violation. Yeah. Um, but then you start to look at it deeper and you sort of say, well, what's really going on here? So, there is a certain flattery. Oh, someone liked enough what I did that they they want to copy it, but it feels like a violation, right? Like it feels oh, like yeah. they're taking your story and you're maybe worried about the confusion that the copying could create, right? Is this place as good or the same as this other place? But more than anything else, it's more that sense or feeling that somebody is appropriating your story. Yeah. And and so but the story can only be told by the person who's lived it, right? The, the, the energy behind the story is not going to be the same someone copying words yeah. as someone who wrote them in the first place. And oftentimes you find that people, they write down what they think others want to hear. They want to understand, oh, you know, why is, you know, uh, a salt you know, floating salt bath, a good thing for you, right? Like you feel it in your heart, you know, it works wonders. It, it's all great and story, but you're focusing on telling the science. And this is the mm -hmm. irony, telling the science of it. Really what people probably want to know is what's your story for deciding to offer that service in the first place. That has nothing to do really with the science behind it. <laughs> 
See, now you're getting into the marketing side of things. (laughs) (laughs) And you're exactly right because, um, you know, there's that quote, I forget who it is. uh, People don't uh, buy what you do. They buy how you make them feel. I may be butchering it a little bit. But um, but that's that's exactly it. The story creates an emotional connection. Yeah. And so in that situation, if you notice that the person hasn't said much about their story, there's an opportunity to create a divergence again between what's been caught. It's much harder for someone who hasn't lived a story to copy somebody else's story. Yep. And then the minute you put the story up, there may be the science there. That's the more kind of like generic common thread. You know, that's the bonus, if you will. But they can't really copy the story. And and so you can immediately yep. then differentiate yourself. And you don't necessarily then need to go to court or send a nasty letter. You can sort of say to someone, hey, you're copying this. And yeah. that's not cool. And I'd like to ask you to take that down or or rewrite the the text. But at the same time, you can take an independent action, dissociate yourself from the particular outcome and feel really empowered and able to to move on. And so that's that's kind of a guiding philosophy for me is that let's really look at the situation and what's going on. What do you need first to reclaim your sense of independence, um, your sense of sort of commitment to your well-being? And, and doing it from your authentic voice. And then once you get there, okay, if there's still something that needs to happen from a legal point of view in terms of some kind of legal action, we can look at that because there are genuine situations where you may feel in jeopardy nonetheless because of an action that's been taken. Mm-hmm. But many times the situations we're dealing with when we have a small business and we're dealing with other people also trying to make a small business work is on a relational level. Yeah. And how do you engage in the dialogue directly and indirectly to navigate that relationship and come to a place where everyone can coexist and do their things mm-hmm. and learn by adapting their communication and the choices for how they're going to choose to communicate vis-a-vis their customers and their colleagues in, in the same space. So have you experienced, you know, on that vein, have you experienced any role? What are some of your experiences in communication in your business? Because, you know, for example, I've had uh, and I'm sure you've had these conversations too. uh, a lot of business owners, you know, are intimidated by conversations that are confronting issues like perhaps non-payment or um, even wanting to back down on pricing because they're challenged by someone who they're offering their services to. What are, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced and what, is, what mindset do you uh, approach them with? Um, I think one of the primary or I guess two primary aspects of a mindset, mindset that I encounter often is one initially the necessity so okay, okay so when a conflict of some kind starts to rear its head <laughs> the immediate need we have is to have uh, an embodied experience of coming back to a place of safety mm. but we use our minds to try and characterize or get us to that embodied place of safety again so we might entrench in our rightness without really knowing the fullness of the situation because if we're right then we can ground in that and we can feel confident again which helps us feel safe which helps us kind of get our footing and then if we have to kind of explore stuff we'll explore it or sometimes the need for safety is so overriding that we just stay entrenched Other times, it's that expectation that people know what's going on even before you've said anything. Well, they should know. And that's rarely the case. They can't know if something hasn't been communicated. They can't know if the probing question hasn't been asked to get them to actually think and say out loud what's going on and then actually hear themselves say, oh, did I just say that? 
oh, I didn't really appreciate that that's how I was looking at the situation or that's what was bugging me. So one of the things I do is kind of help tease out these things. What do we need to do to help you feel safe? What do we need to do to get more information to really understand the perspectives that are at play here? Because we don't want to make assumptions about things. We'll be much more resourceful if we don't make the assumptions. So Mm. let's ask questions and let's have the patience to go through a process of dialogue to ask the questions. And so what questions should we be asking? Okay, let's ask this question and let's see what comes back before deciding that we're going to run off and do a small claims thing before deciding that we're, we're going to do kind of a tit for tat or, or, you know, you can avoid all of that to really learn what's happening and then sort of appreciate that whatever angst I'm going through, the other person's going through some angst as well. And let's see if that angst can get really focused onto a problem so that it's no longer the person that's the problem, but we actually hone in on the problem in the situation and can address that independent of having to make somebody else right or wrong. And so that's um, sort of one thing. And, and I guess a, another thing is, is just over time being able to observe that when we get into a situation of conflict, we tend to abandon an, a part of ourselves. So mm. I, I like to use the uh, Wizard of Oz archetypes of, the scarecrow, the lion, and the tin man. So the scarecrow, he abandoned his uh, intelligence until he found it again through going through the hardship and you know the hero's journey. The lion abandoned his courage until he found it again. And the tin man abandoned his heart until he found it again on that same journey with one another. And, and I, I think we all have a tendency to flip into one of these Uh, choices of sort of what do we abandon without really thinking about it. Some of us go into, I got to be really controlling in the situation. You'll tend to abandon your heart if you go into a very controlling mode. I'm just not going to deal with this and I'm just going to move on and not ever really express what needs to be expressed so that I can move through this experience. Well, you're abandoning your, your courage at that point. Um, and mm-hmm. for, for people who is like, okay, this legal stuff, I don't understand it. I don't know what, what to do here. I can't make decisions. I can't make choices, but I need to do something. And I'm going to be kind of in a, a little bit all, all over the place and just kind of grasping at, at, at straws while well, you're abandoning your intelligence at that point. Mm-hmm. But you have it in all of these situations. You have it because when it comes to legal, what you're really dealing with is a relational issue. That's all that legal is. Yeah dealing with relationships. Very interesting. I that leads me to ask you what are some of the so going on that premise that that legal is about relationships, what are some of the relationship uh issues that you see the most when people are coming to you? What not necessarily the legal problem, but what are some of those dynamics that are coming into play? By far, you know, first and foremost, it has to do with collaborations when people Mm -hmm. are trying to collaborate with each other and they have an initial sense or expectation that we're on the same page, we're we're going to do this project, it's going to be great, let's just jump in and do it. And the time isn't taking to have the conversation about Every project has its ups and its downs. Mm. And well, what does this mean to you? So, and what does, um, what would be your inclination if this sort of situation arose? And how do you see your contribution of of value? And how do you like to address things, right? Do do you like to have lots of meetings to, for everyone to know what everyone else is is doing? Or would would you rather work independently and be able to assess if the relationship is going to be a good fit, if the relationship mm. is one that you can trust to work through the tensions that inevitably are going to arise yeah. without necessarily throwing in the towel. And, but oftentimes the joy of the creative prospect is just so overwhelming. We want to bypass all that stuff because 
that sounds like contracts. That sounds like legal. Um, no, that's really what you're going to do to kind of nurture each other through this this process and celebrate yeah. how you're you're co-creating. Because ultimately, anything we create to have the impact that it's going to have, you have to engage in the process of collaboration and co-creation, whether it's part of like a, a supply chain, yeah. right? I, I work with a manufacturer and then work with a distributor and then the distributor works with the retailers and you may become a little bit removed, but you're part of a chain. Everyone's passing the baton doing their, their bit, or if it's a more a sort of research and development type of scenario where you're actually working together to birth the something that's yeah. that's new and you have to then make decisions in your business model about how the uh, stewarding I like to think of it that way the stewarding mm. of the creation into the world is going to then take yeah. place and I think that's one of the things with intellectual property laws that the messaging that's gotten lost is we think of it as managing relative economic interests. Mm. Most intellectual property laws, they were kind of put in place to, yeah. to do well, it's, that. It's, I um, even said it, it in my intro that it's it's this asset that's become so important to businesses. Exactly. And this so that concept of property aspect. immediate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This concept of property automatically puts you into a, an economic space. But when you look at the etymology of words like economy, you actually get back to sort of a much more sort of human and sort of natural existence that really doesn't have to do with mm. money at all. You know, it has to do with the fact that we work to live. And one of my favorite quotes by, uh, by an author, Khalil Gibran and the Prophet is work is love made mm, visible. I've heard that before. So yeah, really, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we think of economy and we think of it in, you know, the way its meaning has become dissociated from the human spirit and the human condition. Um, but really, when we trace the words back, we get back to that human condition and spirit is that everything we do in some sense is an act of love when it's really coming from our heart space and we're using our mind and using our body to sort of manifest it out into kind of like a tangible 3D type of, of mm -hmm. experience. So intellectual property laws, of course, don't talk about that stuff. Laws don't talk <laughs> about the human spirit unless you're getting into human rights law where, you know, human dignity and, you know, those inherent sort of rights that, that we have are the, the focus and the subject matter. But intellectual property law is dealing with a very spiritual relationship, right? It's it's the relationship around a creation. And the creation is born out of the love that is expressed through your unique blueprint as a creative being. And so I just really love <laughs> to bring it back to that. And it, it's about doing your soul's work in right relationship. Mm -hmm. Really intellectual property is about that but the language doesn't support that vibration yeah if you will it talks about excluding others instead of talking about really what's going on is encouraging people to collaborate by telling people that you can stop somebody from doing something if they don't want to collaborate with you. I mean, yeah. that's really what most of these laws oh, are yeah, saying. Yeah. Is that, uh, not, and, and it goes, which, gets into non-compete clauses and employment contracts and, and yeah, exit yeah. contracts for, you know, executives and things. Those are all, uh, those are all really great points. And, and there's interesting conversation these days about how creativity is hampered by, the uh the intellectual property laws in and you know i don't want to get too far into the the um the policy stuff but of course you know especially in the states there's a lot of um lobbying pressure from very large corporations disney comes to mind and their impact on cor uh, a copyright law and you know in there's the monsantos of the world and and these very very big corporations are having this downstream impact on small businesses and even individual creators 
and it's, there's not a lot of attention paid to those sometimes unintended consequences. Yeah. And so what I'm, what I'm seeing at the same time is a divergence. It's almost like you have two separate universes starting to, to work and, and emerge. And I think the mindset of, uh, you know, oftentimes that a small business might have is that if I get a gig with a big company, I'm set. I've, I've reached right like yeah. the pinnacle of what I could have hoped for as a marker of success, which is very similar to what a songwriter might experience if their song gets picked up by a really famous artist and it gets all the airplay. It's so, somehow like the badge of success. But really, what I see happening um, in the space of uh, creativity and innovation especially in Canada yep. where 98 plus percent of business is small business is we're creating our own ecosystems of interaction with each other. And we're experiencing our success as mutual success with other small businesses, organizations, not-for-profits, all that kind of thing. And so this ecosystem approach is really, I think, where it's at. And it may be that at some point it makes sense to contract with a larger company, but being able to do that from a place of knowing what owning your own power feels like helps you make choices and sort of say, I've been surviving and doing really well and having a lot of fun doing things yeah. at this level. So if this doesn't work out with Disney, for example, or you know Sony Records, I'm okay. I'll just wait until the right opportunity comes along. It's it's when we place urgency to achieve a particular goal that looks a particular way that I think we sell ourselves short. And you know, I'm really I when I left the law firm I was at and went out on my own and you know to be within yeah. the community. Yeah. That was the time when things like Creative Commons was coming online, right? Where people with their content could sort of say, okay, I'm cool to share this. Yep. I just want to have attribution. So please do that. And that's a license agreement. That's one type. Or if you're doing it for a not-for-profit purpose, no problem. Go ahead, knock yeah. yourself out. But if you decide to do something for profit, let's have a conversation. And so just engaging in this relational dialogue through what is essentially a contractual framework that has lots of different options. And so it's through the way that we create agreements with each other, which is by far, in my view, the most flexible way to deal with your intellectual property mm -hmm. or your interests in the creations that come through you and your interests as a steward to see them go towards the vision that you had when, when you um, sort of engaged in that, that process of, of creation it's really at that level where we have all the power that we need. We can design all kinds of arrangements, right? Just because Disney and Sony do it that way, that doesn't mean I got to do it that way if I'm dealing with my small business colleague up the street. And, and so we, we come up with our own thing and we see how it works and we can change it. And we, we have all this flexibility, which you really highlighted at yes. the beginning of our conversation is that you're your own boss. And someone else is their own boss, and you guys can decide how to make things work any way you want. I love that that uh, That's a great part movie. from my big fat Greek wedding because I'm Greek and I love my big fat Greek wedding. You know, the man may be the head of the house, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. Well, I think that's true <laughs> in the small business world as well. Is <laughs> that? You know, we can't, we've, we've got our necks in full throttle. We can do 360, like, uh, I don't know, like an Edward Scissorhands kind of thing, yeah. or, or I know some <laughs> of those other, you know, Tim Burton style movies. I can't remember which one where, you know, people's heads spin around. I mean, we're, yeah, we're, we're pretty sure there was something like that in Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm sorry. It was Beetlejuice. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's okay. We can be quirky. We can be unorthodox. And as long as what we're doing is not harming anybody, that is the most basic premise of the law is basically do what you want to do and just don't hurt anybody in the process. 
And that's the beauty of the small business world and, and collaborating oh, yeah. and potting with, with other small businesses. So that's why I just love being able to walk amongst <laughs> other small business owners and um, engage in those types of processes. Yeah. And going back to your thoughts on intellectual property law and, and generally collaboration overall, the having those legal agreements in place, having the discussions obviously is a really important first step before you ever get to the legal agreements or start doing anything. Those discussions can lead to um, a, a better understanding of whoever you're looking to partner with in whatever capacity that happens to be and determine whether this is a workable thing that can happen. And then, and then it makes it easier once you have that awareness of where everybody stands, what the expectations are, the different styles of working it, you can move into that formally documenting it and it becomes more like it's almost like the business version of a prenup because you are you're saying this is what we're all on board with we all agree to this and and it's nice because unlike an employment agreement your the power dynamic is not hopefully weighted to one side or the other but it's 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 an opportunity to just have that full understanding and manage expectations for all the parties involved. Yeah. And, you know, the other point to add to that is that just because this is what made sense to have in the contract to reflect how you want things to work is what made sense then doesn't mean that three years from now, it doesn't make sense to update oh, it and change yeah. it. We have this tendency to think, I have a contract, it's set in stone. Well, show me the stone where you wrote it on. I, I know the contracts that were written in the ancient Greek times were set in stone, but we're talking now about digital technology and, and there's still yeah. paper flowing around and sort of like, yes. you know, just say that you're going to revisit certain things if certain circumstance significant circumstance changing yeah. events are going to take place, right? Like if this thing becomes way more profitable than we thought, or we find yeah. that we have to, you know, do yeah. some fundraising for this type of money, there's, there's different issues that we can't really fully understand now. So we agree to come back and revisit yeah. and make adaptations to our agreements. And we do it instead of waiting for the investor or the Disney or somebody yeah. else to tell us how we have to change our agreement, which is often a situation. Like we have to understand this is what they're likely looking for. What are we going to do so that between us we're good and we can make a decision <laughs> about whether or not we want to agree to that? Because oftentimes they say, well, we, we got to do this, right? It's like, or, you know, we've lost our opportunity. Well, have we? I don't know. Like, so nothing's ever set in stone. I think that's the, the main thing to, to remember. And we're doing legal all the time, all the time doing legal. And one of my missions really right now is to help people appreciate you're doing legal all the time, whether you're working with a lawyer or not, you're doing legal. So own that, own that and understand what you're doing and then decide how much of that you actually want to do, right? Because I don't do my accounting. I knew when I went on my own, I'm getting a kick-ass bookkeeper and I'm going to have an accountant and I am never going to do my own books. I will make invoices. I will track if they get paid. And then thank you very much. Here's my little envelope. Every, <laughs> every month, you guys take care of it, right? Yep. Um, I completely relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, let's go through that process. So I, I started, you know, offering these uh, workshops on the art of law, uh, which I characterize as awareness, resourcefulness, and, and timing. So ART of, of law. And then from there, I'm now moving in service of that goal of helping people get comfy with legal and get comfy with having the conversations they need to have is 
moving my practice into offering facilitation and mediation, right? With the view that the solutions that people are coming up with, they're their solutions. And I'm just a support to help them get there. And there's so is what happens in the moment, but then how do we prime ourselves to be confident about going into that type of scenario? We have to understand more about our relationship to mm. our creativity with our creations and then in the socioeconomic sandbox with each other, yeah. you know, before. Um, so we got to sort of prime the awareness, the culture before the situations come up. Then you walk into the situations and it's easier to go through your process. And then afterwards, how do you implement what you agreed upon without falling back into a place of mistrust or uncertainty? And so you have to then engage in certain types of processes for people to, to be able to confidently implement the solutions and update them that they come up with in, in that context. So I've gone from this point of, okay, let me help educate people about doing legal themselves to now saying, okay, how do I support them when they're actually going through the different stages and variations of what that, that looks like, both with um, sort of coaching style gatherings around creativity and the relationship, as well as the services to kind of work out the kinks. And then afterwards, what needs to be put in place, which might mean a contract, right? Or it might mean, you know, a governance structure or a policy or or what have you that is still a reflection of the living, breathing and evolving relationship that is now hopefully gone through a paradigm shift by having to go through a mediation or a facilitation. So that's what conflict is really an opportunity for is to to go through a paradigm shift in your learning and your awareness and kind of hopefully make the business even more fun afterwards. Yeah. Well, I love this whole shift that I'm seeing because you are not the first lawyer I know who's talked about not just uh, facilitation and mediation, but also providing that education piece for people to be empowered with knowledge about uh, various aspects of legal relationships that they can, um, whether it's in the corporate world or, um, you know, employment law or whatever uh, practice. Well, uh, I interviewed Tanya Parker Wallace on the podcast uh, a while ago, and and she's a, she calls herself a family law peacemaker. And so she does the facility uh, or the mediation exclusively. So, so I, that, that whole idea of not only, you know, educating and empowering people through knowledge, but also um, for you, I find it's very aligned with your view of, of legal matters, that it's all relationships, that facilitation and mediation makes a lot of sense to, to bring that into your toolbox to help clients. Um, and when you add that to the knowledge component as well, it just becomes this very uh, powerful and somewhat holistic way of operating in the legal space. Yeah, I, I, I really feel that, okay, so let me backtrack here. I think one thing that many of us have learned over the past three years is that um, mm. we have some fundamental issues with our institutions. And so people Indeed. are looking to sort of say, how can I put my fate and my future back into my own hands? And, and that's going to mean different things for, for different people. So, so that's all, yeah. all good. So really, a lot of these legal regimes, looking to them in a way is, again, sometimes an abdication of some aspect of your, your power, right? You're sort of saying, I'm just going to let the legal regime tell me what has to happen. I'm going to, I'm going to put that in front of you. So you know that you can't do this because this is what the law says, but really your power is in working in the ether that's around these legal regimes, which is the, the common law, which was there before there were statutes about patents, copyrights, trademarks. And, And at the common law level, it's all about 
agreeing with people, designing the relationship you want to design, agreeing to conditions, and figuring out how to evolve together as circumstances evolve. And that's really the fundamentals. That's the foundation to begin with. So I think in many ways, we're stripping back and we're saying, let's go back to those fundamentals that exist at a common law level, which is reflective of a maybe a natural law. I would say uh, yeah. an expression on some level of maybe even universal law. But let's go back to a, a fundamental first principles level and that's actually, I have something to thank again from one of my, my mentors at the firm I, I was at. Whenever there was an issue that we couldn't figure out, he says, stop looking at the statutes. Let's just go back to first principles. Yeah. And so going back to first principles is where we find our power, our resourcefulness, our ability to signal how our institutions need to evolve. If yeah. people are working with copyright, want to change the business culture around it at some point the copyright law will evolve and the grip that the sort of larger institutionalized organizations have in terms of dictating well this is what the law says and this is what it's going to look like because we hold the bargaining power that will start to, yeah. to shift and we're seeing signs of it shifting um but I think that's going to start to happen faster. And so people basically will look at law as something that they need to support their relationships with. And so the role of the lawyer is naturally shifting away from the adversarial context of the courtroom or let's negotiate a contract and make sure we have more pros in our favor than they have in their favor, getting out of that adversarial context and sort of saying, you guys have the power to decide how you want to be with each other. And everyone has the power of choice. You can be in that relationship yeah. or you can be out of it. So be clear on that and just design what you want to design. And if it stops working, be able to sort of say, this ain't working. We're grateful for what we were able to do together while we were together. It's time to move on. Just like an ecosystem yeah. ecosystems evolve first like little yeah. grass and then you get a tree then you get a forest and then the forest might change into a swamp like everything changes you just gotta yeah. move with the times yeah 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 i love that explanation of common law because um i've i used to want to be a lawyer just full disclosure <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I've taken intellectual property law and I've, I've taken criminal law classes and I've taken, you know, I've, I've sat in on courts uh, proceedings uh, at varying times and Senate committee meetings and stuff when I was back in Florida. And um, what is fascinating to me about common law, because it, it, there's a different relationship to common law in the States than here in Canada. And in the States, when, when you talk about common law, and I'm no expert at all in this, but this was the impression that I got in, in my learnings, was that common law was viewed as less than the case law, the, the legislated uh, uh, law. And so common law was the, you know, redheaded stepchild. And... Um, what you're describing to me is so much more appealing than this rigidity that comes from case law and statutes because a lot i mean we we've taught you were you were mentioning uh, this greater awareness of the uh, issues that are inherent in our institutions a lot of that is because of legislation and that is the slow moving beast that <laughs> that is so difficult to change. And, and that's not to say that common law is something that's easy to shift, but it seems so much more malleable. And the the, the principles alone are are just give that freedom to to change the values of society because 
society values different things today than we did a hundred years ago. And, and we look at ethics differently now. We've learned a lot scientifically. We've learned a lot socially. And so what we want for the world, how we want the world to look has shifted drastically. And, and I just find that so interesting. And it, it kind of, it's, it's a bit of a revelation to me that, you know, in the States, there is this sort of view of common law as less than versus here where it's, it's, it's more, I don't know that it's entirely, I don't know if it's as respected as it should be, but that mentality you shared is so interesting and it kind of highlights a little bit of the the differences between our countries. Well, I, I, I would even say that, you know, depending on who you talk to, there might, they might not even feel that there are that many differences because definitely going through law school, oh, yeah. you are taught that there's the common law, but if there's a statute, the statute trumps the common law. And in a sense, yeah. I mean, of course, that's, that's true. If a statute comes in and sort of says, um, even though that's white, for this purpose, we're going to consider that it's black, then that's the rule you follow. And the rest of how that gets interpreted and applied is kind of guided by common law principles. So it's, so it looks like statute trumps common law, but really common law is the, or the principles underlying what the common law is about or the civil law, because the civil law they sort of start from two different points, but kind of get to the same place. The common law, it's like Mm -hmm. situational. It's like this situation came up. You took my goat, you killed my goat and I'm out of goat. And I didn't tell you, say that you could, you know, take my goat. Right. So it's like, you go through that, you come up with a solution the next time. Well, you took my sheep, right. I sort of thought that maybe I would give you my sheep, but we never fully agreed on it, but you took it anyways. Well, how similar is that mm-hmm. situation to the goat situation? Well, it's similar in this way, different in that way. Do we come up with a similar solution or is there a basis to say, well, we need a different solution. So we'll articulate that. And that's kind of the common law, but principles start to emerge from there that then get relied yeah. upon. Civil law, you've got a code, but the code yeah. is articulated in terms of those lofty fundamental principles. And then it gets layered in, well, okay, we apply this principle this way in this context. And and then there's statutes which inform that as as well. So statutes derogate from the common law, but this idea that we go to look to a statute, we always have to appreciate that it's layered on top of common law or on top of the fundamental civil law. And those principles are still working in the backdrop. So one thing I admire about our Supreme Court, for example, is they always use this language of trying to understand things purposely, (laughs) purposely or purposely. Oh, my gosh, I can't pronounce it properly. But the idea is let's try and understand what this is really about so that we understand the objective, the purpose, the meaning, and uh, and give inherently even these statutes or these situations some flexibility to work with these principles of looking at what is the situation, what are we really trying to achieve, what is the best way to uphold that balancing individual and collective interests. And so I appreciate that approach that has been established by our Supreme Court. I admire it. Um, a lot. And, you know, I I haven't necessarily been following, you know, case law (laughs) in many domains, because I don't have to. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but I hope that tradition is still uh, continuing. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, you can always go back to first principles, and first principles help you understand, well, how am I supposed to understand the meaning and purpose behind this intellectual property statute? Why is it that I, as the artist, get to reserve the economic benefits for myself, but we allow the public to have the ability to work with the content that we share without having to talk to us all the time because they want to make a YouTube video of their kid pretending to be, I don't know, some famous rock star doing air guitar 
so that we can share that and have, you know, a warm moment with one another. The law tries to capture these essences, if you will, um, and that gets lost when we go adversarial sometimes, or sometimes it gets reaffirmed. But it all goes back to the common law. It goes back to, okay, you know, what's really going on here? (laughs) And how do we resolve it in a fair way? And sometimes it goes your way, sometimes not, which is why we have appellate systems, right? Well, I don't think the judge got it right. I'm going to ask these judges. Well, I don't think they got it right. I'm going to the Supremes. (laughs) And then it's like, okay, that's what the Supremes thought now. But I'll give you an example. In patent case law, there was a decision that said methods of medical treatment are not patentable. And there was a certain context. It was an old decision. But over time, um, that really got watered down as people started to appreciate what we were really trying to do is not hamper medical professionals from being able to practice their artistry, their wisdom in a given situation by saying, oh, I got to go ask, I don't know, Pfizer, if I can do this, you know, because I need to use their medicine or their device or whatever. And so the method of medical treatment, you're not going to be suing the doctors. Get that out of your head. What you can do however is say i'm going to patent the use of something in a medical treatment so the use of this drug to treat x condition that is that liminal space where we're saying if you're going to procure this drug to use it for something that then involves me as the owner of the patent because you have to buy the drug, <laughs> so, right? Right, and, right? And that concept, you know, gets carried out. And now we're dealing with it in terms of um, business methods and the space of uh, software, computer software. And is it just a right. reflection of, you know, a process of the mind as opposed to an innovation that has some tangibility to it? And so we're constantly having these dialogues to really try and understand what are we really doing here and what makes sense in terms of um, at what point do we engage the relationship and sort of say, okay, there are clear economic interests here that we need to balance. And so we're starting yeah. at this point. And I know I'm rambling a little bit right now, but basically a pure idea in and of itself, when it's sitting in your head, there's nothing intellectual property about that. It's how you, just don't tell anyone in case you want to implement well, that, it Well, that's it. It's, it's how you choose to express it in some more tangible yep. way. And then we recognize the intangible contribution that you've made. And so copyright is about expression. There's lots of ways to draw some. Yeah. They can each be copyrighted. Yep. But nobody has power to stop somebody from drawing a picture of the sun as long as it's their original version of the sun or they didn't copy somebody yeah. else's sun in, in the process it's that kind of thing that we're capturing um but apart from that you know the world is our oyster to agree in terms of how we want to share and exchange and work with each other's creativity and, and innovation yeah and some of the allowances and then some of the restrictions are all very interesting to explore. You know, there, I remember when I found out that happy birthday was still under copyright. I was like, what? That's a U.S. thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's one of those things like, let's make a law that extends copyright. That, yeah. 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 U.S. copyright law is, well, intellectual property law in general is kind of, uh, there's a lot of challenges there that we don't have here in Canada, but it's um, it, it's just fascinating. Some of the stories that come out of it, just about the things that are restricted and the things that are allowed, and 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 it's wild. You know, ninety years for I, I was listening to a an interview with Corey Doctorow who wrote a book called Choke Point Capitalism, and uh, he was talking about. And this is again U.S 
copyright law. And um, he was talking about how, you know, no one's going to listen to a 91 year old recording. <laughs> so you effectively have perpetual copyright. And I, and I thought that's so that's a, it's a very salient point because that's really the goal of the, because these are corporate interests that are, that are lobbying for those things. So I'm grateful that we don't have that kind of uh, restrictive legal status of copyright in Canada because it does stifle creativity in a lot of ways. Well, and, and yet, you know, there have been pressures to harmonize things, especially, yep. you know, between Canada. I'm and not US. surprised by that. at so all. So we went from a copyright term of life of the author plus 50 years to now plus 70 years, which is what it moved to in, in the States. So, yeah. you know, we're constantly playing with these, it's, it's almost like a tug of war, right? And you're kind of watching the painted line on the, on the rope, sort of pulling in one direction, and then it starts to pull in the other direction. And yeah. it's like, when is it going to fall? When is it going to collapse? And then once we really see on what side the line falls, are we happy it landed here? And I think that's where we're coming mm -hmm. to, is we're coming to a point where some of these tug of wars are actually going to hit a definitive conclusion or feel like that. And then we're yeah. like left holding this rope with, you know, the scars and, you know, a little bit of cuts and this. And <laughs> like, yeah, are we good with, with where we landed? And uh, that's where the tough work is going to be. And that's why I believe, especially small business, creating such the foundation, right, of the economic mm -hmm. activity in Canada is really going to become a leader in sort of saying, well, this is how we've learned to work with each other. We're done it independently of the large corporate interest that tends to be the focus of, of government, uh, because that's yeah. where you can have, you know, tens of thousands of jobs, right? Oh, we created tens of thousands of, of jobs. But really, it's what we do now and how we develop our culture amongst ourselves is really going to provide a guiding light for when those tug of wars finally collapse and someone's saying, where do we go from here? Yeah. We have all this experience to draw upon. Now let's just, you know, look at things with a fresh mind and a fresh eye and let's start from, from scratch and do it right. And actually I picked up a book. Let me pull it out here which I think is going to be sort of interesting in the topic. It's called The Natural Order of Money by Roy Seabag. And one of the things I've just started reading it is that sort of struck me is that, and this goes back now to sustainability and you know our consciousness yeah. about that. Ultimately, everything we do, the ultimate investor in everything we do is Mother Earth. Mm. So, it may not necessarily be about are we putting plastics into the oceans or, or not. However, this life force that I have, this life force that you have, this creative capability that I have, this creative capability that you have came from the life force and the creative capability of Mother Earth. She is our yeah. ultimate investor. Without her, we have no breath. We have no way to interact with everything that's yeah. around us. So... Let's include her in the dialogue we have with each other. How mm -hmm. does what we're doing align with the natural order of things? Yeah. So I think that's going to be really seminal in our conversations of the, the future. Um, and I just love the ideas that people come up with when you put them down in a room and sort of say, what if? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, and I, I was, um, I was in a conversation. It's been a while ago. I can't remember exactly what the topic was. And, and I just, we were talking about, you know, the costs of, of supporting people through COVID. And I said, and, 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 and the new was expressed that we're going to be paying for this for generations. I said, well, money's all fake anyway. <laughs> it's all something we made up. <laughs> yeah, these are these are all fictions, legal or, yeah. or otherwise. And we can choose to sort of say, okay, let's do a reset. And how are we going to take care of everybody in the reset? There's a way to yeah. do this. Not going to be easy. We're going to have to figure out a lot of stuff. 
But that's, again, that set in stone things. It's never set in stone. No. But it can be painful no. to change. Oh, very, very, especially with things being what they are now. We're so, there, there's so many strong views on everything. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a challenging time to really uh, shift the needle on anything, but um, I'm not giving up hope. So while we are existing in things as they are today, what are some of the things that, you would say to small businesses that they need to pay attention to when it comes to intellectual property in in particular what are small businesses not paying attention to that they should <laughs> um i think the first thing is i remember i had a focus group with a bunch of, of people and uh it was a I have an, an app idea and I had to kind of put it aside, yeah. but I had a focus group about that. And the most common thing I heard is, well, I guess the biggest thing is, is we're dealing with intellectual property. We don't even know we're, we're dealing with it. So yeah, I think the point is, is try to spend some time understanding for yourself. What is your, your, personal, emotional, intellectual connection to what it is you've created? What do you think the value is? And then try to understand how does the legal system recognize this creation? How does it articulate um, where its value is centered? So there's lots, like a trademark, for example, has value from two primary aspects. One is it might be a pretty design. That's a yeah. that's an expression. So copyright could apply. So the value yeah. of it, excuse me, as an artistic work mm -hmm. is one aspect. Uh, another aspect is it becomes associated with your goods and services. So yeah. its value is in how it cultivates your goodwill and your reputation as a business. Those are two distinct ways of appreciate or dimensions, if you will. Right. So creativity has multi-dimensional value and the mm -hmm. creations therefore have multi-dimensional value understand what are the different aspects of value around which you can enter into collaborative agreements with other people i'm going to let you use my trademark leverage my goodwill my reputation to help sell this product that you've come up with you're going to let me also sell this product. So you're going to give me permission underneath your patent to do that because the value here is the functional benefit that people gain from using this innovation. So you just want to really have that clear understanding. And if you can spend some time figuring that out, it becomes a lot easier to understand the ultimate core aspects of your relationship in a supply chain in a development type of opportunity and then the contractual part you know it, you, you can do it with savvy like you sort of say yeah. this is what we're agreeing to we don't want to write it up we'll get a lawyer to write it up or you know what we'll write it up and we'll get a lawyer to check it or you know we'll write it up and we're good like it, it's okay yeah. i mean i i think Ultimately, when there's significant contractual arrangements, you do want to get the help of a lawyer, but you can totally. get really clear on the parameters of the relationship and you can make sure the lawyer stays on point and says, no, 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 you're starting to deviate. I mean, I know that's a risk. We talked through that risk and we're good and we'll just take it as it comes because we've agreed to revisit everything in a year from now in, in any event where we're going to be open to changing things on this level. But for right now, this is what we want to, to focus on. So yeah. it's, uh, I think it really is about understand how other people perceive or how you can structure your understanding of value around the concepts that are out there. Once you've done that, everything else just kind of falls into place. Well, Ari, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. I could sit here and talk to you about this for hours. It's so fun geeking out on legal stuff. Um, 
tell everyone how they can find you. Oh, well, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and uh, you can find me on Facebook and you can find me at my my website, of course, at uh, kemalaw.com. And uh, I I just love to meet up with people and, and have conversations. Always when I meet up with, with somebody, I don't put a, a time constraint on the uh, on the initial conversation because it's really about just getting to know someone and, yeah. and tapping into sort of like their creative spark. Um, so yeah, I just, I sort of geek out on seeing everybody's, like I said, uh, form of, of expression. So let's get together, have a conversation. Doesn't have to go anywhere after that, but we'll be richer for it in any event. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. This has been so fascinating to hear your your views on intellectual property and just the relationships that exist in the world, especially in the area of business. It's uh, it's very um, it's been a pleasure to learn more about your business path as well. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to to be here in conversation with you and and just being so generous to kind of let me kind of go off anywhere I wanted to go off on. So it's, uh, it felt very, uh, very freeing and, and very natural and, and beautiful. So thank you, Karen. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Small But Mighty Biz Stories. Want to hear more stories? Visit smallbutmightypod.com and be sure to tell us about your fave small biz so we can share their story too.